July 4th, 1991. Chinese-Australian heart surgeon and pioneer in the cardiac field, Dr Victor Chang, is brutally murdered in broad daylight on a Sydney street. Victor's research and work ended on that cold July morning 30 years ago, but his legacy lives on. Join me as we explore the life story behind this iconic man and his untimely death. Primary sources for this episode include the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, the Australian National University, St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney University, the Daily Telegraph, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Asian Executive, 60 Minutes and Crime Investigation Australia. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 123 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope that you're all doing well. I've got a really special episode planned for you right now. Um, I do want to say that my voice, while I don't have any pain or anything associated with my surgery, my voice is still taking a while to come back, which is normal. Um, My laryngeal nerves took a bit of a knock during my thyroid removal. So if I sound a bit Kermit-ish, um, that's why, but I'm totally fine. Um, everything is going fine. And actually, this week's episode is really important to me for a number of reasons, um, which I will get into in a minute because I have tied it into kind of things that I've gone through over the last year or two. So first off, I want to welcome new patron Christine. Welcome on board. This week's episode is my own choice. I'm moving away from patron episodes for this week. Um, now, the eight episodes that were locked during a tech glitch with Anchor were unlocked a few days ago. It was only there for 24 hours. Unfortunately, it screwed up the dates that it says that they were released. I had to republish them. That's why they appeared back in your feed. Um, And it says that they were all published last week for the first time, even though some of them go back to October. It reset the dates. So if you do see that, I didn't publish eight episodes in one day. Um, Those are over a period of months. (laughs) So yeah. Now, first off on this one, because I've got so many new listeners and patrons and it takes a while to kind of get through episodes, I don't often reintroduce myself. But for this one, I think it's important to segue into this week's episode. Um, My name's Felicity. I host the podcast since April 2020. At the beginning of lockdowns, I decided to start this. I'd had the idea for a while. It's grown in leaps and bounds and I'm really proud of the community we've built and the stories that we've told. I really pride myself on telling stories that are well-researched. I studied journalism at university. I now work as a freelance copywriter and have for a number of years. Um, Lockdowns and subsequent illness really hit me hard. I was diagnosed in 2021 after about three years of symptoms that were building um, with Graves' disease, which is hypothyroidism. My thyroid produced too much hormone and it was skyrocketing by the time I was hospitalised with it almost a year ago. Since then, it's been an ongoing struggle. Um, It causes, there's not a part of your body that your thyroid doesn't regulate. Um, I had a massive lump in my neck. I just got the weight back from it when it was removed. Normal thyroid is 20 grams. Mine was 110. I had a big goiter. It was affecting my muscles, my heart, um, all kinds of things. And because that's recent to me, I only had it removed, I think, 11 days ago. I've bounced back unbelievably well. 
Um, and I'm going to try not to get emotional during this episode, but I'm already starting to, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I had my thyroid removed the week before last. Um, it was a big operation. It usually takes a bit over an hour, but because mine was so active and so aggressive, it took my surgeon about four hours. Um, my surgeon is my hero. Um, we've had a lot of issues with hospitals here, a lot of necessary things being cancelled. <clears throat> I ultimately went to a private surgeon who immediately got me in to have it removed. I've been waiting since June last year. And since then, my life has changed. I saw him yesterday for my post-op to check my neck um, and I've got a scar across my neck. We kind of went through things and I got quite emotional. Um, I said to him, you gave me my life back and my ability to earn money, to um, have self-confidence again. I've got the associated eye condition, um, which bulges my eyes out um, through the thyroid inflammation. Um, and that has already retracted about 30%. He's given me my ability to get through a day without being sick, um, without collapsing. <clears throat> um, he's given me, me my ability to breathe properly again, without a lump in my neck, to swallow food, to feel better about myself. Um, I've had some really dark times in the last two years, but I've really just forged on and he's just amazing. And I find that surgeons are so humble um, in what they're, cap they're capable of doing and how they affect people. Um, I said to him, you you took that out and you gave me my life back almost overnight. And, he's, and he said, I wouldn't go that far that I've dealt with almost has been an immigrant to Australia, Chinese Australians, Indian Australians. Um, and it's, it's just been truly amazing. And that's why I think researching Victor Chang's episode for this week, I've done it over the last month, watched everything, read everything possible, um, really hit me hard. And I felt myself very emotional and teary a lot of times, um, just the flow on effect of his death and how it affected so many people and also how his life affected so many people. Um, I found myself getting emotional in parts that I didn't think I would be. So that's a bit of intro to me. Um, I'm a born and raised Melbourneian. Parts of this episode take place in Melbourne, but uh, most of it in Sydney. I decided to go the extra mile for this episode. I really wanted to talk a bit about immigration to Australia going back a fair bit because Dr. Dr. Victor Chang was a Chinese Australian and he was just a very important person and I really wanted to do him justice through these episode this episode so it will be a bit longer and I hope that you get something out of it. Um also, finally, if you contact me and I take a while to get back to you, um, don't worry, I do eventually get back to you. I'm just trying to, my life has really been on hold the last year and a half um, and I'm really trying to earn money in my business. I want to move. I have all these plans. I'm trying to spend less time on screens. I want to get fit and healthy um, and plan things for my future. I've everything has felt on hold and now because of my surgeon I feel like I can do that um and I'm so I'm going to aim for an average of between 7 and 10 days a new episode sometimes a patreon only one um sometimes you know but we'll continue to do episodes as normal and I've got some amazing ones planned 
So I've talked for seven minutes, which that's not that bad at the start. I normally don't. Um, I just really wanted to reintroduce myself. Um, so as I said, this week I'm stepping away from Patreon location requests for one of my own because I felt that it ties in. I was actually thinking about Victor Chang recently. Um, my surgeon is a general surgeon, but he specialises now in thyroids and the endocrine system, which is your hormone system. And Victor Chang was a cardiac surgeon and cardiac issues affect my whole family, particularly on my mum's side. My gramps, because of cardiac surgeons, was given four more chances after multiple heart attacks that we thought would be fatal. We, I have strong memories every time of being brought in to him in a coma, being told to say goodbye, a couple of them really firmly in my memory, and then he would wake up and we would have more time. And so... They give you time and they give you your life back. And I think now more than ever, I understand that. And it's amazing. International listeners or even younger Australians may not know this story. I do remember Victor Chang's murder. I remember my mum's reaction. Um, I recently just asked my parents if they remember Victor Chang. And, you know, the immediate response from my dad was, what an absolute waste and my stepmom said, because I've tried to explain what a podcast is and I've given up. So now when I'm researching, I just tell them I'm writing something a piece and need their feedback. Um, my stepmom said, oh, I always think of him in relation to Charlie Teo. Charlie Teo is a prominent neurosurgeon here in Australia. He takes a lot of chances. He does pioneer brain surgery on people who have been told that that's it. There's no other option. He takes chances. As a result, he's a very controversial figure, but I love him. Um, but yeah, so having spent a lot of time with surgeons recently, um, and walking away, realizing why in fact some may develop a God complex because, you know, they are, they take your life in their hands. I really finally wanted to do Victor Chang's story, which has been on my list to do for quite a long time. He and his subsequent Cardiac Research Institute are a household name in Australia and his legacy almost 31 years after his cold-blooded murder do live on. Victor Chang achieved so much in his 54 years. He would have done so much more. He personally changed the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people. And the roll-on effect of that was thousands and tens of thousands of people affected by his work. And the time that was taken away by two cruel individuals meant that a lot of people didn't get the, re the result that they were promised by Victor Chang because he was no longer around. I would say the flow and effect of his murder impacted thousands and thousands and thousands of peoples and their families. In one choice made out of pure greed, his murderers altered the course of many people's histories and livelihoods. There probably isn't a murder I will cover that had such a profound effect on me, but such a wide-ranging effect on the world some of you who may be listening and their families and everyone else. And that is the true tragedy of the Victor Chang story. Cardiac surgeons are particularly close to my heart, as I have said. I learned so, and yes, there's tons of puns because I realised writing this, you mention your heart quite a lot and it comes off like a pun, so I don't mean to. But Victor Chang was called the King of Hearts during his time on earth. I learned so much about this from a couple of particular sources, particularly the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute based in Sydney. And I do hope that you walk away from this learning something worthwhile too. 
There is also an exceptional episode of the fantastic Australian true crime series that is no longer on, and that sucks, called Crime Investigation Australia. It's widely known as an incredible journalistic show. Um, it has done a number of Australian cases and a lot of them are on, it's a haunting show. It's terrifying. Don't watch it late at night. Um, you can find a lot of them on YouTube and some of them I think are on streaming services in Australia, like Stan. I also used a clip from 60 Minutes. There'll be a couple of clips. Unfortunately, there's not many out there of Dr. Victor Chang speaking because it was the late eighties, early nineties but I've used a few clips. <clears throat> so for this, we are heading to the Australian city of Sydney. Contrary to what some people think, Sydney is not the capital of Australia. That would be Canberra, which is about two hours from Sydney. The story goes that Melbourne and Sydney were fighting over the right to be the capital of Australia. So they settled on one that was in between the two, although it's nowhere near Melbourne, it's close to Sydney. <laughs> we have been to Sydney before, a couple of times, but way back on episode two or three, I did the story of Melody O'Gara, who was a young Irish woman who disappeared from Sydney. And I hope that you go and check that out. In Sydney last week, just to make it a bit of bit timely, Sydney had its first fatal shark attack in metropolitan waters last week. It was a young British man with his whole life ahead of him and engaged to be married. And it's a true tragedy. This is the first one in about 60 years. I actually, it's just very, very sad. So let's get into the story of Victor Chang. But first, I want to talk a bit about who Victor Chang was and where he came from. Victor Chang was born Chang Yam Him on November 21st, 1936 in Shanghai, China, to Chinese parents that they were actually born, both of them, in Australia. If alive today, he would be in his mid-80s, and I honestly think he probably still would have been alive. His parents were named Aubrey Chang, that's his dad, and May Lee. According to the Victor Chang Institute biography on Victor, his parents both happened to be born in Australia because both of their sets of parents had come to Australia in the mid-1800s when many overseas, um, many foreigners came to Australia, as well as people from other parts of Australia, um, to mine for gold. This was called the Australian Gold Rush. You can watch quite a lot of things on it. They hit gold and then everyone started coming. This was happening kind of all across the world, really. <laughs> and now it's been mined to death here. But this was when people could seriously improve their lives by coming out here. Although the boat trip, I think, probably deterred a lot of people. <laughs> they lived horribly in really terrible conditions to try to on the whim that they would hit gold and be able to work in that industry to make money for their families. And at this point, Australia was had been settled by white settlers um, from the UK. They had been sending out prisoners. That's how my family came out here um, as punishment in order to work in penal colonies and things like that. Of course, the Aboriginal Australians or First Nations people, as they prefer to be called, had already been here for probably millions of years. Um, but in the mid-1800s, cities were beginning to be settled. We hadn't had federation yet. That happened in 1901. And Australia really had a free-for-all. And I'm saying all that because I'm going to talk a bit about something that has a terrible name called the White Australia Policy shortly, which will explain why suddenly this stopped. 
But Victor Chang's grandparents had come out for that and subsequently had his parents separately, they're not brother and sister, called Aubrey and May. Aubrey, his dad, was born in a town called Tamworth, which is very famous for country music in Australia. I've been there. It's got a big guitar that you take a picture with called the Golden Guitar. This is in country New South Wales, extremely hot, extremely dry. His mum was born in the northwest of the state of New South Wales. Ultimately, both of his parents ended up moving back separately without knowing each other. Both moved to Hong Kong, and this is where they met for the first time. They married and they moved back to China, to Shanghai. Victor arrived in 1936. At this time, it was a very tumultuous time in China and surrounds. When Victor, this is a pre-war era um, and a very tumultuous time across the world, particularly in Asia and Europe. When Victor was just two, Japan invaded Shanghai as part of the onset of the Pacific War and the family felt that it was best um, to go back to Hong Kong where they felt safer. They soon welcomed Victor's little sister. But when Victor was 12, he experienced what a lot of people experience, a very defining moment in his life, the death of a parent. Many people experience this and handle it differently. But this kind of was fateful for the future of the world, really. His mother, May, died of breast cancer, something that in 1948 didn't have the treatment options that it has today. And this major event in Victor's life sowed the early seeds of wanting to study medicine and to help others. He wanted to give people time. I was thinking about the comparison to Adolf Hitler. His mother died by all accounts, under the care of a doctor who he couldn't have done anything anyway. And he instead used that death to harbour resentment, if you believe a lot of historians, towards the Jewish people because the doctor was a Jew. He could have used that to save lives. He could have gone to medical school, although I don't believe he had the intellectual capacity to do that. They're two very different people. Victor Chang used this and it pushed forward his life and changed the world. For whatever reason, ultimately, Aubrey, Victor Chang's dad, decided that Victor and his sister would be better off being raised in Australia. It was a safe place at the time, and it was booming post-war. Both of them were sent out together as children. Victor was only 12 or 13. It was a six-week boat trip, which would have been terrible, And they ultimately were educated and raised in Australia, initially under the care of family friends. His dad had lived in Australia, obviously, before he was raised out here, and he knew about the opportunity that Australia had and that it was a very safe country. So in the early 1950s, when Victor was a teenager, he and his sister set out on the ship from Hong Kong all the way to Sydney, all alone. Staying with extended family in Sydney, Victor went on to go to a school in Lewisham, which is in the southwest of the CBD in Sydney. It's a Christian boys' school. And from then, it was very obvious that Victor Chang was a talented, gifted child. He was also a very caring man and had a huge amount of empathy for people. Australia at this time was going through a major immigration boom, Much of the country was truly built off the backs of hardworking immigrants. I grew up with so many people whose grandparents were the labourers that built my city of Melbourne. Melbourne has the largest Greek population outside of Greece, 
We have a huge Vietnamese population. We have a huge Chinese population, Italians in particular. Speak to anybody whose parents came, grandparents or parents came here post-war and you know that they are tough people who did what they could to get by and they never complained. They did whatever job they had to do. They worked insane hours for low pay in backbreaking jobs, often to bring their families out for a better future. As I said, Italians and Greeks were some of the biggest immigrant communities to Australia, and in particular, Melbourne and Sydney. It's hard to get into Chinese immigration without going into the entire history of Australia on the whole. Although Asian nations, particularly the Chinese, have been immigrating to Australia for almost 200 years. Remember, Victor's grandparents lived out here. Initially, they came out as part of a labour shortage, which is generally when the Australian government asks people to come, like right now. In the late 1800s, they brought in what was called the White Australia Policy, and this ultimately meant that a lot of immigrants who could once come here could no longer come here. In short, the White Australia Policy was brought in at Australian Federation in 1901, The role of it was basically to outlaw non-white nationalities from immigrating to Australia to keep it a white race. Yes, it's bad. I wish I could get into it more, but I'm giving you a little bit of background. It started out in its early beginnings by not allowing family members of existing Asian and South Pacific people living here from joining them here. The laws ultimately preferred white people from the UK which continued on for 100 years and continues to today. The whole place is full of Irish and English and vice versa. And it lasted for decades. The then Attorney General was a man called Alfred Deakin, who was actually one of the buildings at my university was named after him. He was a big proponent of the white Australia policy. He aimed this quote at the Chinese and Japanese at the time. It is not the bad qualities, but the good qualities of these alien races that make them so dangerous to us. It is their inexhaustible energy, their power of applying themselves to new tasks, their endurance and low standard of living that make them such competitors, unquote. So it's actually not about racism in the strictest sense of the word at all. It's about the fact that they knew that they were probably harder working people than the average Brit coming out here or the average white Australian, and that terrified, you know, the government at the time. But not everyone in Australian Parliament was on board with the white Australia policy. There were, of course, dissenters. A man called Donald Cameron, who was a member of the Free Trade Party based in Tasmania, expressed this, quote, No race on this earth has been treated in a more shameful manner than have the Chinese. They were forced at the point of a bayonet to admit Englishmen into China. Now, if we compel them to admit our people, why in the name of justice should we refuse to admit them here? Unquote. Our Prime Minister here during World War II was a man called John Curtin and he reinforced his support of the White Australia policy. He said, quote, this country shall remain forever the home of the descendants of those people who came here in peace in order to establish in the South Seas an outpost of the British race, unquote. So flash forward to the onset of the Second World War. 
and during it, the biggest anxiety in Australia was the war in the Pacific. I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Pacific. It's well worth watching. It's the Stephen King's um, Stephen King Stephen Spielberg show uh, focusing on the war because you know there was the war in Europe and the war in the Pacific, and Australia was kind of in both. We were more stationed during the European, you know, during the Holocaust and then war in against. Germany and the Axis. Uh, we were more in Northern Africa. We weren't involved in the liberation of concentration camps or anything like that. But Australia was based in throughout the South Pacific and throughout Asia. Both of my grandfathers were stationed. Um, my dad's dad was stationed in Indonesia and the Philippines. He was involved in quite an important handover according towards the end of the war, according to my dad. Um, I don't know the name of it. My maternal grandfather, my, my beloved Gramps, he was stationed in Darwin, which is kind of represented in the movie uh, Australia, the Baz Luhrmann movie. Uh, the bombing of Darwin was the closest that Australia came um, to being, you know, kind of overtaken. So during the war, anxiety over Japanese invasion in particular of Australia was rife. And the cracks began to show in the support of the white Australia policy. I've noticed that Australia tends to kind of backtrack on these things when they realise that they're declining our population on purpose. Our population has exploded in like the last few decades, but about 20 years ago, there was like a push for women to have more kids and giving women what was called the baby bonus. And I can't remember what our treasurer the exact quote was, but it was like one for you and one for the country. They were trying to boost our population rates, but we actually slowed um, the population right down as a result of the white Australia policy, which didn't allow immigration. Yoko just put a butthole in front of me to scratch her tail. Sorry if you can hear her. She thinks I'm talking to her. So the policy then began to be dismantled with the onset of the end of the war and the slogan, quote unquote, populate or perish was launched as a result. And as I said, this was honestly discussed until 20 years ago. The White Australia policy eased in the 1950s after the war when Australia really needed help with labour again to get everything going again. Men had gone away to war and women as a result had entered the workforce. My gran always worked um, and women had realised uh, that they could do these things. There's a really good Dave Chappelle quote that I can't think of. It's something like, women realised that they could say things and do things they hadn't done before, like, fuck off, and I'm not doing that. So our Prime Minister, around the time that the White Australia policy really began to be dismantled in the 1960s, was a man called Harold Holt. Harold Holt, in his own right, is incredibly interesting and I plan on actually doing one of my first ever video podcasts at some point on Harold Holt. The reason for that is because Harold Holt in 1967 went swimming on a beach down on the peninsula um, just outside of Melbourne. I used to go down there quite a lot and he went for a swim <laughs> Um, it, things were different then. There wasn't like a secret service kind of situation. He liked going to the beach. He had a house down in Melbourne. He actually didn't live in Canberra most of the time. It was all very relaxed. He was a pretty cool guy. He had a lot of enemies. 
Um, and he went swimming and he vanished. Now, there was a lot of, at the time, theories that he uh, was kidnapped by a, you know, Japanese submarine, Chinese submarine. He probably just got caught in a rip. There's pictures of him swimming all the time. I'm going to do a whole thing on him. I want to go down to Point Nepean where he vanished. My only link to that is that my dad was a journalist for decades and covering the disappearance of Harold Holt <laughs> was his first job. I think he was 18 and they sent him down to stand on the beach and see, you know, and report from there. And that was it. He was never seen again. But Harold Holt is renowned for being one of our best ever prime ministers. And the White Australia policy dismantling is a credit to Harold Holt. The last remaining policies were only ended after Harold Holt went missing in 1973, but he really got the ball rolling. And I'll do an entire ep on all of that at some point. If you're wondering about what Aboriginal people or First Nations people were dealing with at the time, at some point I will do a whole episode on the stolen generation. I'm not sure at this point how I'm going to work it into the theme of the podcast, but basically they were being used as labour as well and children were being taken from Aboriginal homes, particularly in remote areas, and put into white homes to be raised as white. These were generally children who had one parent who was like a white father, but an Aboriginal mother and things like that. The movie Australia, as much as I don't like it, is is quite good at discussing that. But there is a great Australian movie called Rabbit Proof Fence, which you have to see. Um, we studied it in school. I went to school under the Howard government and the Howard government didn't teach what happened before European settlers. But as I got to the end of school, they did start to, and we discussed the stolen generation quite a lot um, and the ongoing effects of what that did to the psyche of Aboriginal people. But I don't want to segue away too much. I just wanted to talk a bit about immigration, particularly Chinese. Today in Australia, the Chinese community, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, is huge. Nowadays, many universities are 50% international students and many of them are Chinese. I went, I went to uni and lived with a lot of them. The 2006 census showed that there were 221,000 people in Sydney that reported using Mandarin or Cantonese as the language that they used. That equated to around 5.39% at the time. And my city, Melbourne, has the oldest Chinatown in the country. It's awesome and it's one of the main landmarks in our country. By 2010, the post-war immigration program had received more than 6.5 million immigrants from all areas across the world. They also brought in the £10 POM scheme, which brought the UK, the Brits out here to often do really hard labour, but in order to settle. And that's how a lot of people's parents are British and things like that, because they came out on the £10 POM scheme. The population tripled in the 60 years since the war to around 21 million in 2010, and I believe it's 27 million today. And our country is made up of people from around 200 countries around the world. We are one of the most multicultural countries in the world. The population of Australia at the moment, I couldn't find an exact statistical breakdown, but it's around 30% are immigrants from around the world. The rest are white Australians or 
um, generational from immigrants that came out and 3.3% are Aboriginal or First Nations people. But it was the post-war influx of immigration and the relaxed white Australia policies of the early 50s that Victor Chang found himself in, wrapping up his schooling with high marks and looking forward to his future. Australia was moving full steam ahead, making up for lost time with men back from the war. Women were now in the workforce. Victor Chang was a quiet man, and he always would be, but he had a funny kind of quiet sense of humour And everybody who worked with him had nothing but good things to say. They said that he was incredibly empathetic, quiet and charming. But he was also very gentle. And you can tell that from the very short clip that I'll play for you at some point throughout this of him talking about why he does what he does. In 1962, when he was 29, he graduated from Sydney University with a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery double degree. This is highly stressful. They have a huge dropout rate after the first year of any medical degree. At my uni, I believe it was almost 50% leave. They don't realise how intense it's going to be. To finish is huge. This is why I have such high respect for anyone who even does a Bachelor of Medicine and becomes a GP. This is highly stressful and Sydney University, where Victor Chang was educated, is one of our top universities. But from there, it was only up for Victor Chang. He completed an internship at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, which would ultimately remain the hospital that would be the closest to Victor's heart. There's another one. It is one of Sydney's biggest hospitals and there's one in Melbourne too, albeit I don't think they're connected. Victor then headed across the world to build on his skills. He went to the UK to learn under a leading surgeon in the field of cardiac and thoracic surgery at the time. Um, He'd actually been sent there by one of the leading surgeons who Victor would ultimately take over from a man named Mark Shanahan. He was a leading cardiac surgeon at St Vincent's in Sydney. Mark Shanahan had sent Victor to London to train under a British surgeon with the name Aubrey York Mason. That's the second Aubrey in this episode. It was also Victor's dad's name. And the funny thing is, I had a university teach uh, professor called Aubrey. I'd never heard it before, not for a man at least, and it came up twice in this episode, so that's only three times I've ever heard it. Victor was building and refining rare, really detailed skills that would serve himself and others for decades. Now, in 1966, when he was 30, Victor became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in the UK and he worked at Royal Brompton Hospital in London. One particular shift, a woman came in called Anne Simmons. She'd been to a party somewhere in London. She was British, English, um, and she'd fallen ill at the party. I don't know what it was, but she ended up in emergency. Victor was covering, he was on call in emergency. They often do very long hours. Victor crossed paths with her during her time in emergency and that was fateful. Their chemistry was instant. Anne and Victor fell in love and got married and she would remain quite private throughout the course of their marriage, but it was a strong marriage. And when I get into the details of his death, you can't imagine the loss that Anne and their children would experience later on. 
they're, they're just beautiful pictures um, of them getting married. And I don't know a whole lot about how her family took her marrying a Chinese man, um, but I'm sure they were fine with it when they realised how much he was ultimately going to earn. <laughs> they would be together until his death 25 years later, and they had three children, Vanessa, Matthew and Marcus, and as far as I can tell, all are alive today, but I can't find if Anne is still alive. She was just always very private. I couldn't find any death notices. Victor ultimately decided that his main area of expertise would be cardiothoracic surgery. And he actually went across to the USA for a time and worked at the Mayo Clinic, which is one of the most famous institutes in the whole world. At the Mayo Clinic, he was the chief cardiac resident. Now, if you're wondering what cardiothoracic means, I've got the health.com definition here. Quote, cardiothoracic surgery is the field of medicine involved in surgical treatment of organs inside the thoracic cavity, generally treatment of conditions of the heart, heart disease, lung, lung disease, and other pleural or mediastinal structures unquote. So he was good at the heart and lungs, mainly from everything that I know, but mainly the heart. In 1972, Victor's heart, again, I didn't mean to do these puns, they just happened, pulled him back to Australia. He felt his real affinity was with St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He returned to St. Vincent's Hospital with his family, where he was a consultant cardiothoracic surgeon. In 1972, he made his return to St. Vincent's Hospital, where he would be for the next almost 20 years. He worked as a consultant cardiothoracic surgeon, and he basically ended up almost being the boss of the people who had trained him. He worked under who was then a very prestigious cardiothoracic surgeon called Dr. Harry Windsor. Dr. Harry Windsor, looking him up, was amazing in his own right. He, he had basically been a doctor during the Pacific War. He was a doctor in Papua New Guinea um, around the Kokoda track, which is a whole other episode I want to do. And he eventually passed away a few years before Victor Wood in 1987. Together, they performed Australia's first heart transplant in 1968, which is so early to do that. Australia actually pioneered quite a lot of um, medical treatments. We actually invented the cochlear implant, um, and people like Fred Hollows, who, you know, you may have heard of, um, pioneered a lot of eye treatments. By the time Harry Windsor met Victor, he was in his 50s, he was heading towards retirement and he was training the up-and-comers at St Vincent's Hospital and Victor was a standout. In his later memoir called The Heart of a Surgeon, Harry Windsor described how he saw Victor Chang, quote, from the outset, his intelligence, dexterity and confidence were apparent. Victor revealed himself as a genial, open person with a tendency to think aloud and bear his soul, unquote. I'm going to go through some career highlights for Victor Chang. All of this is very important because it really hits home the loss um, of this person. And when I get into the details of his death, it will probably mean a lot more to you. Basically, um, a lot of people have been inspired by the work of Victor Chang or directly impacted. You, if you're Australian, probably are connected to someone who Victor Chang, in a way, changed their life. But I'm going to give you a bit of history on heart surgery and heart disease and a few statistics to see why this area and people who specialise in it is so important. 
Every year globally, according to the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, 17.5 million people die from things associated with the heart, heart disease, congenital heart disease, and heart-related issues, people of all ages. It's the biggest killer of anyone by a long mile. In university, I worked for the Heart Foundation raising money, so I already knew a bit about it, um, and obviously from the experiences of family members. How heart disease affects men and women, they often have parallel symptoms, but a lot of research has found that women can have symptoms that men just don't have, and that the knowledge isn't there, and then Um, education of it can save a lot of lives because for women it's often a silent killer um, where it's more overt in men. And a heart attack can present very differently. People can suffer from congestive heart failure for for years and and be none the wiser until they have a, a cardiac arrest or heart attack. My grandma, my dad's mum, died in her 60s um, in her sleep. She just died. She never smoked. Uh, My grandfathers did. Everyone did back in the day, but grandma didn't. Um, My granddad looked over and she was dead and um, they'd just bought a house to retire in and really affected my dad. Um, There was nothing they could do and it was basically a build-up of things in the arteries and calcification. Some babies are born with congenital heart defects, some develop it, and sometimes life choices, you know, i.e. smoking influences it, or obesity, sedentary lifestyle. In short, a heart attack happens or a cardiac arrest when blood supply to the heart is limited and the heart muscle begins to die. The most common heart attack symptoms are a pressure, tightness in the chest. A lot of people kind of describe it as like a fist around their heart. This can present in a number of places, including down the arm, the left arm generally, um, pain throughout the jaw, uh, pain throughout the neck. Um, I actually went, when I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, to hospital because I had shooting pains down my arm. I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, So a lot of things can appear that way. Panic attacks can also cause that, but you've got to be safe than sorry. Um, nausea generally, um, people often sweat profusely, uh, in the lead up, some people for months before, generally a cold sweat, indigestion or heartburn, fatigue, lightheadedness or sudden dizziness. In women, the symptoms can be the same or unique. Um, I know that for some women, they're likely more to have heart palpitations leading up to it than men are. With men, it's just... My grandfather was on the phone talking to his nephew, totally fine, the one that killed him and then he was gone. So that's something that you've got to really keep an eye on and get regularly tested for. Um, Obesity, diabetes, stress, depression, they've found a lot of links between high stress, bad depression and high levels of anxiety causing heart problems. A sedentary lifestyle, which I think most of the world unfortunately now has, um, and women can develop heart issues through pregnancy or menopause as well, something that men, you know, obviously don't have. In fact, as we will see as I get into Victor Chang's story, a simple virus can cause heart muscle death even in young people. It's just the luck of the draw. Even just 30 minutes of brisk walking a day can lower the likelihood of all of these things. And I've been unable to really even do that over the last year. So I'm really getting like back into it again. A family history can also be a big indicator and you should definitely be very careful if you've got a family history of heart issues. It does 
increase your risk of all of these things happening. But, you know, my both my grandfathers had massive heart attacks and gave up in their 60s. So you can you can do it at any age. You don't just you don't you're not written off just because of your age. Regular heart checks should be done as you get older as well. In 1980, what are called anti-rejection drugs in the field of heart transplants, otherwise known as immunosuppressants, were becoming available widely in Australia. This was a turning point for medicine in Australia. It made, in particular, organ transplants possible to do. And Victor Chang was stoked when this happened because it meant that he could do heart transplants and lung transplants. Basically, an immunosuppressant isn't just used to do transplants, but what it does is it suppresses the immune system after a transplant in particular so that the body doesn't attack the new heart because the body sees it as a threat. To tie it back into my condition, my eye condition um, is basically would at some point I'll be doing some steroid treatments. Basically, um, it's my condition is autoimmune. At some point a few years ago, my body started attacking my thyroid and saw it as an enemy. This happens. There's a hundred autoimmune diseases you can have. Um, this can happen with the heart as well. But immunosuppressants like steroids would mean that my body would stop attacking itself for a time. So I'm just letting myself get back into it to, and they're seeing if it the inflammation goes down without that. The removal of the actual gland has really helped probably 70% over the last even week. So that's, you know, there's steps to take in the lead up to that. But in regards to organ donation and um, heart transplants, by giving someone an immunosuppressant or anti-rejection drug, it meant that the body wouldn't automatically try to expel this new organ, which would give the body time to recover, heal and accept the organ. The immunosuppressant relaxes the system so it doesn't want to do this, which is a natural thing. Victor had lobbied for anti-suppressants for ages and he was given some funding from the heart unit at St Vincent's to do this. Ultimately, he was successful and immunosuppressants were brought in. And it was only a couple of years later that they did the first ever heart transplant in Australia. Victor Chang became a household name in Australia on the 8th of April, 1984. This was when he completed a heart transplant that is still talked about in Australia today. He completed it on a young woman called Fiona Coote, who was Australia's first, sorry, her youngest ever recipient of a heart transplant. Fiona's story is really interesting. She's still alive. She's doing great. And it's because of Victor Chang. Fiona had been a healthy teenager. She came from a country town outside of Sydney. And she came down with a severe case of tonsillitis. This can ultimately have a, in very rare cases, such as Fiona's, a autoimmune response, which starts attacking other parts of your heart. This is very rare, so don't stress. But Fiona, basically, the tonsillitis became a whole infection and her body turned on her heart. She almost overnight, she was on the verge of death. She was extremely weak. She was only about, I think she was 15 at the time. Um, and she would have died within hours of the operation taking place. They were down to the 11th hour. 
I found an archived article from The Age in 1984 that read, that basically no donor had been found for months and Fiona was hours from death when a donor match came in. They don't know who that was. Most of those files are locked in Australia, but basically someone with a matching tissue and matching everything to Fiona had died and that person would in a way change the course of history. Victor is quoted in this article from The Age as well. I'll read you a bit from it. Dr Chang said the operation was a success, but Fiona's body will start rejecting the heart in about four days. The rejection process now has to be overcome. This may take months, Dr Chang said. Dr Chang said the initial rejection usually lasted for about a week. The first 24 hours after the operation could cause the most concern. Doctors yesterday refused to release details of the heart donor, but Dr Chang said the size of the heart was perfect. Age compatibility was good and tissue matching was excellent. The donor of Fiona's heart could have been aged up to 45 years, but not younger than herself. A donor must have blood group and tissue compatibility with the patient. Doctors spent several hours on Saturday night checking such details before the operation was approved. Fiona was rushed to Sydney's North Shore Hospital from Manila, a small town near Tamworth, last Thursday. She has a rare condition called cardiomyopathy, which causes the heart to stop contracting and pumping properly. It usually affects young people. Fiona's parents had been told that if she did not receive a donor heart, she would die in just a few days. Her mother, Mrs Judy Coote, said yesterday it was difficult to accept that somebody had to die to save her daughter, but the family was, quote-unquote, naturally relieved when told a heart would be available. The Coots made a public plea last week to the relatives of anyone who died in the next few days. They asked for any such relatives to give permission for a heart to be donated. After the publicity, several people rang North Shore Hospital offering their own hearts. Australian law makes it illegal to take an organ from a person not brain dead, unquote. So for the time in the 80s, this is truly astounding. Organ donation was barely a thing at the time. Now it's an everyday thing where people can opt in and opt out just at the click of a button online. I think these days you have to sign up. I manually signed up, but you can opt out again. But back then it was not something that was done um, where, you know, people donated the organs of someone who had recently died. You've got to wonder if, if it happened now whether Fiona would have had a heart really quickly um, and she was probably prioritised more being a young woman <clears throat> where it suddenly happened. Now, what makes it truly amazing is that while Fiona was only the fourth transplant recipient in Australian history, she is only the second to survive for a significant period. The other people died quite quickly but her age and her health generally were on her side. She did ultimately reject the first heart and she was forced to have a second transplant, which took place in 1986. And ever since then, she's been great. She's 52 today. She's very well. And she's one of the main patrons of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. He saved her life twice and she has campaigned for many heart charities. Um, and she herself received an Order of Australia just like Victor Chang later would. There's many pictures of her as a teenager in the 80s with Victor Chang um, and they both kind of went down in history. And as we get into the murder of Victor Chang, I kind of want you to think about how someone like Fiona Coote must have feel, 
felt getting that news. Recently in the news, there was an older guy in his 60s. He basically had been on a list for a heart transplant, but he hadn't turned up to appointments. He'd not taken his medication he was supposed to, and he hadn't followed the doctor's orders in order to stay on the list. And the list is very strict, you know. Um, You can't be out on a bender and then still waiting for your new heart. But it's come a long way since Victor Chang was active in the 80s and early 90s. And now they're trialling putting pig hearts into human beings. It's not meant to last for a long time, but I read about this guy in January. He survived the initial one, the pig heart makeup is the most similar they can use to a human one and looking it up he's still alive (laughs) Um, and it's been like a six weeks or something it's only supposed to give him a little bit more time unfortunately I believe he was a heavy smoker and drinker throughout his life from what I could find he was basically hours from death when they decided to put the pig heart in the jokes write themselves I was thinking about Seinfeld Um, but he was totally like the color had improved. It was, it was amazing. Um, I know that they use, they're starting to use like things from within pig, uh, pig thyroids for Graves disease, like what I have. Um, it's very interesting. I know a lot of people who are religious have an ethical thing with it because they see the swine as the ultimate, kind of gross thing. Um, I don't, I love pigs. If they're going to die, you know, which is going to happen regardless, um, you know, at least they give, they have a purpose beyond that, but they are very sensitive, amazing animals. In that same year, 1986, Dr. Chang founded the National Heart Transplant Program at St. Vincent's Hospital, which is still the one that's used across Australia today. Since then, they've done thousands and thousands of transplants of organs all throughout the body. By the time he was murdered in 1991, hundreds of heart transplants had been completed under Victor's watch and he personally had done 14 lung transplants. Victor was not a religious man, but there was a chaplain at the hospital at St Vincent's called Sister Bernice um, and she regularly got around and gave comfort to patients and He would regularly stop and talk to her and ask her to pray for his patients. Dr. Chang also played a key role in developing an artificial heart valve um, that would later be used and still continues to be used today. In 1986, Dr. Chang, at around 50 years old, was awarded Australia's highest honour, which is called the Companion of the Order of Australia, an AC, and he also had an AO, the Order of Australia. Yes, I know it's AO, but for some reason, sorry, no OA. Um, But in 2000, years after his death, he was voted the Australian of the century by the people of Australia, just to hit home how important this guy is. His work didn't just stop there. He regularly travelled across Asia, particularly back to China um, and to Malaysia and so on, teaching doctors over there these new skills that they'd never heard of. Um, He was amazing in... I think once he retired actually from surgery, he just would have been a teaching doctor. But Victor's entire life wasn't his job. Because the family was quite private, I wish I knew more about kind of what he liked. Did he watch TV? (laughs) I doubt it. Um, What did he like doing? How did he stay fit? 
I do know, though, that he had one particular hobby, which his daughter Vanessa talked about in her memoir, which is out of print, so I couldn't get it. She said he loved cars. Cars were his getaway from everything in his life. They were his hobby and his opportunity to relax, according to Vanessa. He had restored a 1950s MG before, and he regularly was out puttering around in his garage. He loved driving cars fast once he got out on open road. He had a Citroen that he loved. He had several Porsches and he drove a Mercedes to and from work of which he was driving the day that he died. This is like nothing. If you look up, I'm going to get into kind of what surgeons earn because it shocked me. They should be earning millions. Victor Chang was only worth one or two million when he died at the time. They don't earn a whole lot. Um, so he, he, this was his kind of little fund for himself and he deserves a hundred Porsches, you know. He deserves to have the Jay Leno collection of cars if that's what he wants. Meanwhile, out in the community, Asian gang violence was at its peak in the late 80s, early 90s. So much so that a task force in Sydney had been set up called Task Force Oak, which would come into play in Victor's murder. A subsequent one that was run separately was set up in Melbourne to combat the Melbourne gang problem. But actually, most of the problems in Melbourne in the 80s and 90s were the Melbourne underworld associated with the Italian mafia. Watch the show Underbelly if you want to know more about that. <coughs> the triads, um, an Asian gang, had a major foothold in Australian cities, particularly Sydney. Police found it hard to get a foot in the door to get information and earn the trust of Asian communities because they would close ranks. They didn't fully trust the police due to experiences they had had back in their home countries. And as a result, extortion, human trafficking and forced prostitution and forced labour, you know, in sweatshops that weren't legally on the grid were becoming more and more excessive. Victor Chang had not been immune to public attention, but unfortunately this kind of these gang activities would steer the investigation into his death for quite a number of months. Dr Chang was only worth around, as I said, one to two million Australian dollars when he died and he was already 54, so he'd accrued that over a lifetime. He was not Rupert Murdoch. There's footballers here that are worth that amount by 25 years old. One just got paid 400000 Australian dollars to go on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here for a month. For what Victor Chang did, he was worth way more than that. And it actually shocked me looking up what surgeons earn. It actually made me appreciate my surgeon and the hours he puts in even more. It seems still small today, even compared to 1991. The average doctor in Australia today earns 156000 The average surgeon earns just short of 200000 annually. I know middle managers who do nothing who earn that. Um, my dad knows journalists who earn way more than that. Um, there's marketing executives that are on twice that. I've always thought it's so backward what people earn here, who earns more, who earns less. I think garbage men should earn a ton more money. <laughs> um, but surgeons can be on call for days at a time and get very little sleep. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
When he died at 28, Heath Ledger was worth around 15 million Australian dollars. Hugh Jackman is worth around 180 million. Rupert Murdoch is worth 22 billion. And yes, he hasn't saved anyone. He's employed people, yes, but he's also ruined countless lives. The morning of July 4th, 1991, was the middle of winter in Australia. We're backwards to most of you guys who listen. It's nice, it's crisp, the air smells really nice, and living by the sea, you can really smell the salt for miles. Victor Chang um, was living in the Sydney suburb of Clontarf. This is in the Northern Beaches area of Sydney, quite upmarket area, quite beautiful. His family, as I said, was very private. His address has never been publicly stated. But Victor Chang was a creature of habit. Every day, Monday to Friday, he left home at the exact same time, generally around just after 8am. He would take the exact same route to work um, and he'd generally come home around the same time, give or take an operation that he was doing. As a surgeon, he hadn't just stopped operating and started setting up charities and things like that. He was a surgeon full time. This morning, July 4th, 1991, 31 years ago almost, he left home as normal, on schedule, in his really nice suit, ready to head to his office at St Vincent's. This particular morning was all normal. He kissed his wife and goodbye. They were at home still and the three kids, I believe, at least two were at home. And he got in his Mercedes-Benz 500 SL to make the drive into town. This area where he was driving through, which Crime Investigation Australia recreates and drives the exact route, their recreations are brilliant. They even use the same cops that worked on the case. Um, And this particular case, they take you to the exact places and recreate it. He was driving right along the bay. He crosses over the Spit Bridge heading into the Sydney CBD. Traffic was heavy at this time of morning in the heart of Sydney, but it was flowing normally. And he started driving through the upmarket suburb of Mossman. He had a car phone. This is pre-mobile days, but the pinnacle of success I always felt was a car phone. He picked up his phone to call his wife, Anne, at home just to tell her some everyday things and to say hello before he was busy at work all day. Victor didn't know that he was being followed by two men, one with a lengthy criminal history. He'd never met them before. He had no association with them, but they knew him. While on a Mossman main street, the ABC gets it wrong. And if you ever see a source, it says it's outside his home. It's not. Victor's car, two men pulled up alongside him while he was driving. Traffic was heavy. Lots of people witnessed this. They pulled up kind of to the front of his car on the left-hand side and while he was driving, they slammed into him from the side. There was considerable damage to both cars at the front on the left-hand side and I believe, you know, they knocked out his light there as well. This was kind of a dark blue Toyota Corolla, quite run down, especially in consideration when you look at um, the Mercedes that Victor was driving. He heard metal crashing and as a result, he honestly thought it was an accident. He turned into the next side street, which was a road called Lang Road. People were driving up it. Pedestrians were walking to work. 
Victor pulled over. He got out of his car. The two men pulled up behind him on the street. They also got out of the car and Victor approached them. He probably thought it was just going to be an accident. They were going to apologise, give each other their insurance details and he would go on to St Vincent's. There was actually a patient waiting for him at St Vincent's for a heart transplant, which I'll get into in a minute. Two Asian men got out of the car. One was brandishing a gun. He immediately started talking, according to witnesses, very intensely to Victor Chang. According to these witnesses, including a man who had the gun pointed at him who was walking to work, they started arguing the men were speaking in Mandarin. Um, Victor Chang was talking back. It went on for several minutes back and forth. And suddenly... One Another passerby who came by said that Mr Chang called out to him in English, call the police, they have a gun. Regardless of what was going on, but now we know it was a very amateur extortion and kidnapping attempt, Victor Chang was not going to give these two men what they were demanding, which I will get into as I get into the investigation. I think they just assumed that he had money on him, um, millions, <laughs> but that's just not the case, and he was not going to go with them willingly. A shot rang out. He was shot in the head from a couple of metres away. This struck his right cheek. It went out behind his right ear, but it actually missed his skull completely, but it knocked him to the ground. This wouldn't have killed him. He would have lived. The man brandishing the gun then walked up to Victor Chang bent over angrily, put the gun to Victor Chang's head and pulled the trigger. This shot went right through Victor Chang's right temple and into his brain and killed him instantly. Sorry, it's, I find this really affecting, this story, um, because it's just such a waste. It's such a massive waste. (laughs) Um, Victor Chang, 54, known as the King of Hearts, was dead in a gutter on a Sydney side street. Dr Victor Chang performed Australia's first successful heart transplant at St Vincent's Hospital back in 1984. I really do admire those families who can, in time of crisis, to make that decision to give somebody else an opportunity to live. I think that's the greatest gift that you can give people. That same year, then 14-year-old Fiona Coote, who's now 46, became the youngest ever heart recipient. It's no great big deal, really. It's like it doesn't hurt or anything like that. And Dr Chang's most famous patient. Life is not permanent for them, nor is it permanent for you and I. But at the height of his career, on the 4th of July, 1991, the surgeon was inexplicably gunned down on a Mossman Street in Sydney's north in an extortion bid that went horribly wrong. Friend and colleague, Professor Peter MacDonald, was a pallbearer at his funeral. What did we lose that day, the day Victor Chang was murdered? You know, we, we lost, you know, one of Australia's great people, whether Regardless of the profession he worked in and everything else, he was just a fantastic Australian. That clip is courtesy of 60 Minutes about six or seven years ago. Uh, They did a story on him and the legacy that he left behind. 
and they had old clips and that's the only clip I can find of Victor um, being interviewed, I think, in 1986 with some quite fateful words of him talking about life being short. Victor Chang's broken body was found slumped in the gutter leading up, you know, just a couple of kilometres from his home outside his Mercedes-Benz on a busy Sydney side street. He had been killed instantly by the second point-blank shot. The bitter irony of the whole selfish act is that a patient was currently at St Vincent's Hospital on the table waiting for Dr Chang to arrive to do a heart transplant. I don't know what happened with them. I have no idea. But the flow-on effect of Victor Chang's murder is hard to think about. Witnesses tell the huge police contingent that arrives on the scene that the men were of Asian appearance and threatened witnesses who put up their hands, you know, said it's nothing to do with me um, and ran away. The cops who worked on the case were seasoned detectives. One of them had recently, Peter O'Toole, had worked on what was called the Granny Killer Murders. <clears throat> the only podcast I can think of that's done anything about it is last podcast on the left on their Australian series. Otherwise, there's a good Crime Investigation Australia episode on it. It was a man called John Wayne Glover who was killing grandmothers across Sydney um, in the 80s. And Peter O'Toole was fresh off that when he was given the role of investigating the cold-blooded murder of Victor Chang. By two uh, Asian males, persons described as being Asian males, who had uh, subsequently fled the scene. Almost immediately, a vital clue is discovered. The crime scene had been left intact, and uh, one of the objects that were located, or was located at the crime scene, uh, was a wallet. And that wallet contained uh, airline tickets and uh, an identification certificate, a Malaysian identification certificate, which uh, I believe is about 20 years old at that stage. However, it certainly did identify person. In the episode of Crime Investigation Australia, they have the detectives holding crime scene photos and you can see them. Um, it's Victor in his suit just lying um, in the gutter um, in the street <clears throat> before they took his body away. But of course, <clears throat> with the media... If it bleeds, it leads. And the media had a field day, openly smearing Victor's name after everything he had done with no evidence. They were saying that he was connected to the triads um, because he was seen talking to two Asian males. Um, they basically derailed the investigation early on as they want to do. Here's Detective Peter O'Toole kind of discussing it. Sorry, guys, his name's Dennis O'Toole. <laughs> Peter O'Toole was an old Hollywood actor. Sorry, had him on the brain. Here's Dennis O'Toole. Within hours, news of Dr Chang's murder is out and the men of Task Force Oak are facing a media frenzy that's threatening to run out of control. Dennis O'Toole has by now been assigned to the task force. There were some outlandish allegations made in the press where Dr Chang was involved in the illegal... Uh, taking of body parts, that he was tied up with the triads, that he was part of the movement in China that was going for democracy against the Chinese government and the Chinese government had planned to kill him. There were all these crazy schemes that the media, where they came from, uh, we don't know to this day, 
but all these theories were put forward and of course a lot of that still has to be acted on and you have to act on that information wherever it did come from so <clears throat> australia the me- the, <laughs> the media really has this <gasps> they're trying to get us they abducted him for political reasons. It's very, that's that's a very Australian thing that seems to have bled on from the Harold Holt disappearance. It's never just a random bungled crime or a current taking you out to sea. It's always like, you know, a Japanese submarine. Um, but in this instance, I, I will say the fact that the task force had just been set up and the fact that um, triads were so active and violent and constantly extorting people in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, it does make sense that you would kind of go to that potentially. But it was the public smearing of Victor Chang without any evidence that was really the worst. So police started a nationwide search for the killers and the public reaction was complete outrage, disgust and grief. They did start looking into several theories in relation to the triads, as they were commonly known for extortion, kidnapping and then extortion, holding people for ransom. And that maybe because they saw two Asian males talking to him in Mandarin, maybe that's what they were attempting to do. And it would turn out that that would have been the plan initially to kidnap Victor Chang. But Victor Chang, to quote Gavin De Becker, was not going to the second location. Another theory, as Dennis O'Toole said, was that he was working in some sort of international organ trafficking ring, which I do believe does happen in the world. I don't believe that Victor Chang was doing it or that it was happening in 1991. Victor Chang was given a state funeral, which is one of the highest honours you can have here. It's when you've contributed a lot to Australia in some way. Ordinary locals came in droves on this cold winter day in the pouring rain to pay their respects, crying openly outside. Victor Chang was ultimately cremated and if you are looking to go and pay your respects in Sydney, his ashes are interred under a memorial plaque in Green Park, which is a beautiful park in Sydney that I have been to, in Darlinghurst, one of the central Sydney suburbs, right opposite his favourite place, St Vincent's Hospital. So if you ever find yourself there, go up, go across and say hi to Victor. So you may have heard Dennis O'Toole saying that they found a wallet on the scene. If it wasn't for that, I honestly don't know if they would have ever tracked what happened to Victor Chang. But these people are bumbling idiots. The person who did it had their wallet in their back pocket and it fell out. In the wallet that was right there on the grass, they found lottery tickets, addresses, phone numbers, ID cards. Almost every address that the police followed up or phone number was a Melbourne one. Melbourne is in my, I'm in Melbourne. We are at the state underneath the state that Sydney is in. Um, but driving between the two is about 12 hours. I've done it a lot of times. Flying between the two is about an hour. Almost everything in the wallet was associated with Melbourne. So they instantly got the Melbourne police, you know, homicide detectives on the case. The owner of the wallet, because his ID, albeit outdated, was a man uh, called Chu Seng Lu, who I believe was 48 at the time. So his ID was ancient. 
He was a Malaysian national who had an extensive criminal history in Malaysia. He had run up massive gambling debts before coming to Australia and technically he should never have been able to enter Australia with that criminal history. These days it would have been detected, but back then no computers, everything was manual. He'd been to Australia before. There's a lot of Malaysian immigrants in Australia. I went to uni with a bunch and two of them are still really good friends and I've visited them in Kuala Lumpur. They're a quiet, respectful community, but uh, Chu Seng Lu was not one of them. He'd been to Australia before, decided that that's where he was going to settle. This time he'd come out here. He'd only been here for about, I think, a month before Victor Chang's murder. This man, Chu Seng Lu, was traced to an address in Sunbury, a suburb on the outskirts of Melbourne, towards the airport, um, with the help of the Melbourne Homicide Squad. Ultimately, they held back on arresting him or even letting him know that they were on to him. The reason being was the wallet on its own wasn't enough evidence. They knew that eventually if they arrested him and said, we found your wallet at the crime scene of this revered surgeon, he could just easily say that he lost his wallet, that he was in Sydney and it must have ended up there. Um, He had nothing to do with it or that someone stole it in Melbourne and ended up with it in Sydney. And that would be enough to for him to walk. So they set up surveillance of him um, in Melbourne meeting with other people. And one particular meeting in a bus stop with an unidentified man at the time, caught their attention. They witnessed the two in a very heated conversation for an extended period of time, in depth, yelling at each other. Um, And when they saw this, they thought they were onto something. They were trying to identify who this man was. But it was when they saw Lou, not long after that, going to a travel agent, buying a ticket, coming out and boarding and plane, sorry, boarding an airport bus that takes you out to Melbourne airport, they knew that they had to act. At the airport, they surrounded the bus. They waited for the other passengers to get off so that there wasn't a hostage situation. And as Lou was getting his luggage out of the back of the bus, they slammed him up against the bus and they got him. After In about 30 metres, once he was inside, he would have been in a federal area, no longer in a state area in the airport, and he wouldn't have been able to be touched. He had a ticket to fly back to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and he would have been gone. They arrested him. They took him for remand. And when they told him that they had his wallet, it was next to the dead body of Dr. Victor Chang. He did say he lost it. That was the thing that he came out with. They predicted this. So they'd already kind of banked up other evidence to hit him with. Lou said that he lost it in Melbourne in February 1991 and hadn't seen it again. However, there was a lottery ticket that belonged to Lou in the wallet, which was purchased five months after he said that he lost his wallet in the June of 1991. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, the June of 991, just weeks before Victor Chang had been murdered. He was caught. They then, to avoid a media circus, drove him from Melbourne to Sydney um, and they had to sit in the car with him for 12 hours. Now, I guarantee that's the most he ever saw of the Australian countryside. Flew into Melbourne, didn't leave, went to Sydney. (laughs) It's a very scenic drive and I've done it a lot of times, albeit I doubt he was enjoying this particular one. So they had Lou. Meanwhile, the second subject was still unidentified and unfortunately they were able to identify him but it was 24 hours too late. 
By this point, 32-year-old Malaysian national Philip Lim had boarded a plane to Kuala Lumpur and was gone. By now they had his name though and they also had a really good relationship with the Malaysian police. Unfortunately, if you have listened to this podcast for quite a while, you will remember the Barlow and Chambers case of the 80s. Barlow and Chambers were two Australian men we covered on a two-parter who trafficked heroin into Malaysia and the death penalty is there and they were hung in the 80s. Sorry, I don't have exact dates. Um, It had already happened by the time this all happened, though. I've got a lot of dates to remember on this podcast and I can't just pull them luck out. Um, So we'd already dealt quite a lot with Malaysia, albeit on a quite strained basis with Barlow and Chambers. And that would continue on forever because Australians are constantly breaking drug rules in Asian countries. But they were able to get in touch with the Malaysian police who were very interested in the fact that a Malaysian national or two Malaysian nationals had allegedly done this crime. Lim, who they had just identified, who had fled back to Malaysia, they found out actually was a permanent Australian resident by this point. You have to be here for a few years to apply for that. And to get by, he'd worked in various Melbourne restaurants. He wasn't like a high flyer. The Australian Federal Police immediately, as I said, got involved with the Royal Malaysian Police. And it is a true example of just perfect inter-country cooperation. Australian detectives, including O'Toole, flew out to Kuala Lumpur. They said that the Malaysian police gave them every single resource they could and that the Malaysian police were surveilling everyone that they could. There was no holding back information. They have an interview on CIA with one of the main police in Malaysia who handled it, and he basically said that Shame is a very strong thing in Asian cultures and the Malaysian public, it was big news there. They took it personally and they were so angry that a Malaysian was responsible. They were sickened by it and they wanted him caught. So most people were receptive to trying to find him. O'Toole and his team of detectives spent seven weeks in Malaysia looking for Philip Lim to no avail. Ultimately, they returned home empty-handed, but they were promised by the Malaysian cops that they had everything on it and they would catch him initially. They were surveilling his girlfriend by that point and his family, and they knew eventually that he would mess up. And they were right. The Toyota sedan in question by this point that had slammed into Victor Chang's car, forcing him to pull over, was found in um, Melbourne. It, because these aren't geniuses or criminal masterminds, it had parking tickets for that trip to Sydney when Victor Chang had died, despite the fact that Lou was saying that he didn't go to Sydney. Um, It had contacts of the two other men in it. It also had gun cartridges um, within it. Now, just keep in mind that this was about five or six years before the gun amnesty happened in Australia. So there was quite a lot of gun crime, although there's more gun crime now in 2022 in Australia than there was uh, since the gun amnesty happened. So they were able to identify a third man in Melbourne who seemed to have a link to these two men and his name was Stanley Young. This third man was packing it when he was taken in and really in self-preservation mode. He basically very quickly broke. He told the police that he had been uh, with Lou and Lim while they planned the robbery of someone 
Basically, they had been reading a newspaper or a magazine breakdown of the most influential Australians, um, Australian Asians in particular, and Victor Chang was on the list obviously. And that was the fateful thing. They'd never heard of him before, but they zoned in on him and thought he would be easy to trail. He was a creature of habit um, and they'd be able to extort money from him despite never having done it. These two men had no connection to the triads. They were just, you know, amateur idiots. They finally settled on him when they saw him in this magazine list of prominent Australians or Australian Asians. This man, Stanley Young, was given immunity in order to testify. He wasn't there when Victor Chang was killed. He was there during the planning of it and he'd actually driven to Sydney with them before pulling out, basically. In short, he said that Lou and Lim came to Australia with the primary purpose of committing crime, extorting money from someone who had a lot of it. It was a get-rich-quick scheme and then they would return to Malaysia. There was no love of Australia. There was no interest in integrating into society. It was purely to do this to someone, be him, you know, a local or an immigrant, um, get the money and go. There was nothing really beyond that. In November 1991, um, four months after Dr. Chang's murder, you'll be happy to know that Philip Lim was finally caught by Malaysian police. They had never given up on looking for him and they were able to track his girlfriend to a telephone in a public bus station. She called Philip Lim, he came to meet her and they nabbed him. They have all this on CIA, they go to Malaysia to show you kind of where he was caught and things like that. Lim was remanded pending extradition to the worst Malaysian prison there is. I can't think of what it's called, but it was the one that Barlow and Chambers were in, and they do make reference to this in the Crime Investigation Australia episode, which I believe is called The King of Hearts, the episode. It's on YouTube, thankfully. In the end, compared to this hellhole, an Aussie jail would be the Marriott compared to it, so I don't think Lim really cared at this point what happened to him. At this point, Lou was in a remand centre in Sydney. Lim ultimately admitted his role. It didn't take much. I think of the two, because he didn't pull the trigger, he felt more distanced from the whole act, although he witnessed it. Later, he would say that he didn't know Lou had a gun and was going to do what he did. And while I'm not sure if killing Victor Chang was in their grand plan, they did think that the extortion would go through really easily and that would all pan out. And as the Australian cops say, they just never thought that it wouldn't work and it's so obvious that it wouldn't. Back in Australia with all the evidence stacking up, the gunman Lou suddenly changed his not guilty plea to guilty, albeit he never apologised or said, yeah, I did it. He just said, yeah, guilty. After travelling from Melbourne to Sydney in June 1991, the month before Victor Chang was killed, Lou and Lim had made three attempts to carry out the abduction and extortion of Victor Chang, and he didn't even know it. Initially, eight days prior to his murder, they went to his home. They found out where he lived. They tracked how he went to work every day. They noticed he took the same route, did the same things. Their initial plan was to knock on the door, take the whole family hostage while Victor Chang was home, um, and they would be paid out and fly back to Malaysia. But they saw extra cars in the driveway. They thought that it would be too much if the Changs had guests and other people to account for. So the first 
the first attempt was aborted. And meanwhile, Victor Chang was none the wiser this was going to happen. The next time they had Stanley Young in the car, um, he had driven up from Melbourne to Sydney with them. They got, Stanley Young was driving and he was meant to be the getaway man, but he was super nervous. It really wasn't in his character to even do this type of thing. And they felt he was so nervous that he would mess the whole thing up for them. So they basically said, you're out, you're out of the trio, we're going to do it. So he was gone and ultimately he would get immunity for telling them all of this. So they pulled out of that one. The next day, July 4th, the plan was set to follow him to stage a road accident to have him pull over into a side street under the pretense of swapping insurance details to then probably force him into their car, take him to back home to his house where his family was and to take the whole family hostage. And if he did not consent to this, they said that he they were going to kill his whole family. They also demanded $10 million when they approached Victor Chang, which he must have laughed at for sure because he wasn't even worth nearly that. I think they had a, the wrong idea of how much money was tied up, you know, in fundraising that he's done and he didn't actually have that much money to hand. Ultimately, when they got out of the car on that side street and approached him, the what the witnesses saw was an altercation where they, in Mandarin, demanded all of these things from him. Ultimately, Victor Chang said he was not going with them, that they were not coming to his house, that he was not going to bring his family into this. He knew that his family was at home and there was no way he was allowing these men there. He was going to go down um, himself without allowing his family in it. Anne was the love of his life and so were his kids. They said to Victor Chang if he didn't pay up, they would go to his house and one by one hang his children and wife in front of him. Dr Chang was not going to that second location, as I said, He was protecting his family and children in his final moments on earth. He lived a hero as far as I'm concerned and he died a hero. The killers got angry and Lou shot the good doctor dead. Philip Lim was ultimately sentenced to 22 years in prison. Yep, that's Australian sentencing for you. Every comment about this online is sickened by the sentence. Americans writing 22 years, what? It's a joke. Um, And I think the court system was kind of like, well, they weren't going to kill him. They just got carried away. Um, But to me, I don't even want to get into it too much because I'll get too worked up. They should still be there. Um, They should still be suffering. Um, And Dr. Chang and all of his patients and their families got a life sentence um, or a death sentence. And they should, as far as I'm concerned, if we still had it here, they would too. Um, it had recently been abolished a couple of decades before. So unfortunately, um, we didn't have the death penalty on offer. Lou, the gunman, got 24 years. Yep. As they pled guilty, it didn't go to trial. The reason behind the entire saga was pure greed, not thinking of anyone except themselves, knowing that he would have had patience, but a real fuck you, I don't care attitude towards it. Just no forethought for anything. In 2009, after just 18 years in prison, Philip Lim got out and the next day he was deported back to Malaysia. 
he was let out on parole and Australia gets rid of criminals pretty quickly. Ultimately, public outcry tried to stop this, including Victor Chang's family. The parole board makes horrible decisions as far as I'm concerned in regards to violent offenders. A number of them have gone on to commit very very quickly, very heinous crimes, um, one of which at some point I'll cover, the murder of Jill Ma. Um, but ultimately he was let out in 2010. Two years later, in 2012, the gunman and the main mastermind behind it, Lou, was released on parole and also deported. He'd barely done 20 years in prison and I don't know anything about their time in prison either. Dr Chang's son, who was an advocate for the family, said that they were devastated by this decision, that these men were able to walk away and live a full life. Lou had been married before, back in Malaysia. He had three children who were now adults, and he just went back to his life, living with his wife and two sons. But if you want some good news, Lou had been in really poor health, even though he was only in his late 60s, um, for quite a long time. He'd been treated for things. He was held in Long Bay Prison in Sydney, which is quite a notorious prison. He suffered from Parkinson's disease, um, the early stages of dementia and severe depression. Um, And if anything, and you know, if the universe, what goes around comes around, um, that was his punishment. Unfortunately, Lim didn't have any issues. And as far as I can tell, they're both still alive today. There's no follow-up as to what happened to them after and the last news articles were 2012 when Lou got parole. Lou could be dead because he was 48 when this crime happened. It would make him almost 80 Um, and in the condition with Parkinson's dementia, it's degenerative. I believe Lim is still alive. Now, their families, in particular Philip Lim's families, were not happy with their sons. Um, I found a quote from Philip Lim which made me happy. He said that his elderly father was absolutely disgusted in him for what he'd done. He said he didn't think his family could ever forgive him. They were repulsed by him. He said, quote, my father is so ashamed, I cannot tell you. My family has suffered a lot and I feel sorry for them too, unquote. I honestly wish there was more footage of Victor Chang talking to kind of end this in, but what I've played for you is all I have, unfortunately. To leave off with a bit of a legacy of Victor Chang, in 1993, two years after he was murdered, the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute is opened after the government and public pool funds together for it. 30 years on, almost, it's still in operation today. They do amazing work. And if you're interested in that or to donate, I would in the name of the podcast, but at the moment, having just had time off for surgery and things, um, I can't at the moment, but I do plan to in the future um, do a small donation and put it in the name of Unknown Passage. Um, I might use some Patreon money for that in a few weeks' time um, because that's something that I want to do, uh, kind of give to different charities, uh, animal charities and otherwise through this podcast when things get a bit better. Um, I can't find if Anne, Victor's wife, is still alive today, but I can just imagine the loss of him not being there anymore in their household. 
Um, if you're in Sydney, the Victor Chang Institute offers heart health checks in their clinic at St Vincent's Hospital. So far, they've done 80,000. It's run by registered nurses and doctors. Uh, they check everything and it's all very easy and straightforward. Otherwise, you can do that through your local GP um, or, you know, your local public hospital if you're not near St Vincent's, anywhere across Australia. Currently, the statistics released by the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute are that one in 12 people have high blood pressure, one in three people have high cholesterol, and one in 13 people have high blood sugar. So getting on top of that early um, puts you in good stead for the future. If you want to read more about the work of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, the number of things that they have done, I couldn't even list them all. It's on the website, the work that they've done. Every year since it was set up in 1993, there's some sort of major breakthrough um, in the sector of cardiac research. New things discovered, new medications, new scientific knowledge, new tools. Um, and it's all because of Victor Chang. They also have a lot of patient stories on the website that you can read. People of all ages, from babies through to seniors, from all walks of life, who have been saved either directly by Victor Chang under the knife or by the Research Institute over the last 30 years. This July 2022, July 4th, will mark 31 years since Victor Chang was murdered and few can say that they will leave the legacy on this earth that he did. So I want to dedicate this episode to Dr. Victor Chang. I will put up Dr. Victor Chang's episode page on the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com and any video resources that I've used, you can watch the crime investigation episode on YouTube. I'll put that up this week. Um, Any any other things, 60 minutes, um, all of my different sources and some, and some pictures of uh, Victor. I'll also put them in Patreon as I do. Become a patron. I'm really looking to hit 100 page, uh, patients. <laughs> patrons. Um, I think I've got 72 patrons at the moment. It's an awesome community. You get access to all the patron posts. You get a shout out. You get a episode of your choosing in the future. It may take a while to get to. It's generally about three or four months on average, can take longer. I've got a couple of really good interviews coming up that I've had to kind of work around and wait for my voice to come back. Leave a rating or review if you like the show. On Spotify now, which I find most people use, you can't leave an actual review worded, but you can go to the Unknown Passage main podcast page where you find all the episodes and there's a little star thing at the top. You just click that and it opens up and just click five stars. That's all it takes. Um, And it changes like the average. So thank you for that. Um, Lastly, yep, there's the website, um, unknownpassagepodcast.com. Every episode guide is there. I try to, on each page, add information about the city it took place in, links to YouTube videos, um, educational stuff, sources, which I've got to update the last few Um, Yeah, so that's pretty much all. I will be back with new episodes, Patreon-only episodes or Patreon request episodes um, on the next one. I've got a really good interview, which will be Stephanie's coming up. She's waited so long. It's a really interesting person. I plan to do that in the next two weeks. I just got to teed up with them again, going off for surgery and the Christmas break and all that um, kind of messed things up a bit. I've also got what well, I won't be doing that often, but I've got a, 
a, a patron coming on to do their own patron location request. The reason for this is that they're, they're, it's like their pet case. I'll get them to explain it when they do. I'm sure you'll know the case. Um, I do know it, but I'm interested to be told about it and to have my voice uh, get a rest in someone else um, tell the story. I don't, it will be one or two parts. I'm, I think it's next week. I'm really excited for it. This person's great, just how they explain things. Um, it's not really on offer for other patrons, um, but for this one, it's just really helpful because they're an expert in this particular field and I hope that you'll love it. We have to tee up like a cross a global um, time difference, like our issues. We're on the opposite sides of the world and pretty much as far as possible away from each other in terms of time. Uh, so we will figure it out. I'm always in contact with them. Um, check your, look after yourselves, uh, get your heart checked, even if it's just a blood pressure check um, and stay well. And I will be back with the next episode. And thank you for listening. And I hope that you learned something about Dr. Victor Chang. R.I.P.